Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down on green He makes me lie down on green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 23 is one of those passages, isn't it? We think about it, and we all have our own memories attached to it and, and, and things like that. So we, we have been the last few weeks thinking and, and talking about anxiety, and we're going to continue that. And so uh, if you haven't been with us, I would just encourage you, you can go onto our website and find old uh, our, our last couple of weeks sermons, not because... I'm a great preacher, but because uh, Philippians 4 is just that good, and it's just that important uh, to have in your arsenal um, in, in the fight of anxiety. So uh, we, will, we will continue in, in Philippians 4 this morning. When I say the word Amarillo, don't cringe, I know, <laughs> but what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Uh, it probably has to do with, you know, something that uh, what the uh, Billboard magazine says is country music's most recognized song. Probably that's what that's what most people say when they meet me. They go, "Oh, Embryo by Morning," right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, that song was originally written and performed not by who you think it was, but by uh, a country musician from Amarillo. His name was Terry Stafford. Uh, he d- he wrote that in the seventies, and then. This young whippersnapper named George Strait put it on one of his albums and, you know, of course, made it more famous. But, uh, you know, Amarillo is known for a couple of other things as well. Um, Many people call it kind of the the capital of the beef capital of the world. We're within any close proximity of Amarillo. There's about two and a half million uh, beef cattle at any living at any one point in time. Um, there's, There's cattle everywhere there. Uh, it's also home to a, a facility called Pantex, which is where almost all of our nation's nuclear uh, weapons are designed, assembled, disassembled, and stored. Uh, so people always say, well, if there's ever a war, Amarillo won't know about it because it'll just poof. It'll just be gone, and we won't, we won't even have to worry about it. It'll just, you know, home of thousands of nuclear weapons. So anyway... Uh, but I have to tell you one more interesting thing about Amarillo. Well, I'll tell you lots more in the future. But just for today, one more interesting thing I think about Amarillo is that Amarillo is the helium capital of the world. You've probably never even thought about helium before, but Amarillo is the capital of it. It's one of the few places on the planet where you can actually find helium in great enough concentrations to actually get it out of the ground. Um, it's home to the National Storage Facility where almost all of our nation's helium uh, is produced, refined, and stored. Uh, um, 
I didn't know that much about helium, uh, nor cared that much about helium, until somebody who I know that works in that industry uh, told me about it. If, if you're a chemist or like chemistry, you probably already know um, that helium is the only element on the periodic table that is non-renewable, non-renewable, meaning there's a limited amount of helium on earth. If there's only so much and you can run out, all the other elements will, will, are renewable, but, but helium is not. So, and, and in fact, it's actually fairly rare on earth. Uh, it's all throughout the galaxy. Some planets are nothing but helium, but, uh, but on earth, it's, it's kind of rare. Um, and so here's to me where the story gets interesting, okay? Um, helium is vital to several, several really important things. You can't operate MRI machines without helium. Uh, you can't do any kind of nuclear production without it, which is partly why nuclear weapons are made in the panhandle of Texas is because that's where the helium is. Um, there are other things like uh, arc welding uh, that needs helium. They use it to, to cool the rockets for like going into space. So NASA and SpaceX, and all, they use more than their fair share of helium to keep the fuel cold. Um, helium is needed for any kind of plasma stuff, so a lot of the medical procedures, like those eye surgeries that they do, where they use a laser or some kind of plasma thing, you've got to have helium. Um, there, there's all kinds of newer technologies that are really important for us in our lives, and it need, they all need helium. And, and so many people have been saying for a long time, okay, helium is vital, it's precious, and, in fact, rare. Uh, we should be protecting it. We should be, uh, you know, making sure it, we, we, we utilize it to the best. We should protect it at all costs. But if I asked you what you think about when you think about helium, what do you think of? Blimps and balloons, right? Uh, you think of fun things. And uh, because some people said, hey, we've got to sell this stuff, right? Uh, businessmen found a way to make a buck on helium. Uh, so, you know, maybe a birthday party or, or something like that. You've used balloons. It's fun. It's even cool. Maybe some of you have, you know, sucked the helium out of a balloon before and to sound like a chipmunk, right? It's kind of fun. Um, most experts, though, say that using helium for any kind of entertainment like that is, is a really bad idea for, for the world, um, you know, kind of to make a long story short, helium is really hard to refine, um, and it's so, so expensive to do that it's almost kind of cost prohibitive. Even in the places that you can find it in, in small percentages, it, it takes so much to get it, it's, it's, it's almost not worth trying to make. But because it's so important, we make it anyway. So, um, and these experts would say, hey, th this is not a good idea for us to be using at football, football games and birthday parties because of, because it's, because of that, right? And, and, and they would say, we only have about 30 years left at the rate that we're using helium on this earth. We have only have about 30 years left of being able to utilize helium. So, uh, some would say... Let's stop using it in balloons and stuff. Because imagine the day that you need an MRI and they say, actually, our, we're in a, there's a helium shortage and we can't, 
take a picture of you. We, we need to, but we can't. Or, or there is a surgery we could really benefit you, but unfortunately we're out of helium, and so, so our plasma machine's not working. Um, helium has been misused, we can say. Uh, and they would, experts would say it is a shame in, in the ways that helium has been misused since it's such a rare thing. This morning, our passage has been misused a lot, uh, just like helium has. Um, some would argue it's probably the most misused passage in all of Scripture. Um, and, 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 and it's easy to see because if you look up the statistics of the most read Bible verses in the world, guess what number one is? Come on, it's easy. Yeah, John, it's John 3.16. It's always been John 3.16. It always will be. Guess what's number two? Psalm 23, right. You guys got that one this morning too. So, but traditionally in the top five is Philippians 4.13. I I find it interesting looking at the statistics that another one of our verses that we read last week is almost always in the top five or ten. And that is uh, Philippians 4.6, about not being anxious but by everything in prayer and petition. Right, that verse the cure for anxiety, as we talked about before, uh, is, is traditionally one of the top ten as well. So Philippians 4 is a big chapter. So this morning we're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to get to the bottom of all this. We're going to see how this verse often gets misused. And then we're going to get to what Paul is actually saying. And, and, and in my opinion, I think we'll see what is a better, even more important understanding of, Psalm, of Philippians 4.13. Than, than what we've maybe traditionally had. So let's, let's pray together as we go to God's Word. Father, would you guide us this morning? We know that, as we have talked, that anxiety is so prevalent in our world, and it's, it's so, so real for each of us. We all deal with it. We all deal with all the things that come with that, fear and discontentment and um, and, and, sh- and struggle in day-to-day living as a result. Father, you're, you have something to teach us this morning. Would you, would you help us to hear it? Help us to hear your word above all and, and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Philippians chapter 4. This morning we're going to read verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I'm going to read it out of the ESV version this morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So reading this verse just immediately probably brought back different memories for you. I remember writing it on my wrestling headgear, okay, when I was a wrestler. I had Philippians 4.13, and, um, you know, you may have had a different memory of it. You may have thought about some of, the, some of these guys. Let's see if we've got a couple of guys who, who love Philippians 4.13 as well. You guys know him, right? Tim Tebow. There's Philippians 4.13. He's got in his eye black before a big game. What's next? Steph Curry. 
right? That's one of his big verses. He talks about it a lot. Philippians 4.13 for Steph Curry. Let's see one more, maybe. You guys know who this is? Some of you do, probably. This is John Jones. Or most people call him John Bones Jones. He's a UFC fighter. You can see he's got it tattooed on him. Uh, so every time you watch this guy fight, he's got Philippians 4.13, you know, front and center uh, there. Um, we see this passage, uh, you know, all kinds of places, and, and uh, especially it's used a lot in athletics. And, and almost every time you see it used in athletics, I'm not going to be too mean here, most of the time, almost, most, almost probably every time, we would say it's misused or at best misunderstood. You know, it's not probably meaning what they want it to mean for what they're doing. You know, what, what, what do most of these guys, when they put it on their, you know, UFC, you know, this UFC guy, when he puts it on his chest, probably what is he using it to mean or to think that it means? It's got to have something to do with accomplishment, right? To accomplish great feats. I can do all things. All things means all things. So that means I can accomplish. I can get into whatever college I want. I can be all state in track. I can accomplish whatever I want to accomplish, right? I can blank. You can fill in the blank there. We all have the thing that we want, and Philippians 13 is our pathway to get there. I can accomplish all things. Now, let me just say, for some clarity, that there are verses such as, you know, Matthew 19, 26, that, that make it clear that nothing is impossible for God. So, you know, uh, if, if you're five feet tall and want to be an NBA center, I guess you can say it's possible if God wants you to, to play in the NBA that he could do that because nothing is impossible with God. But let's just get down to it this morning. The Philippians 4.13 is not the verse for you if you're going to, you know, at five feet tall pursue, you know, being a sinner in the NBA, okay? It's not meant for that. It's, it's saying something different. Um, but don't fret. Don't be discouraged. Because I think there's actually a more hopeful message in Philippians 4.13 than I want to, you know, be a, a sinner in the NBA. And, and something that prods us on to accomplish great feats. So we'll get to that here as we go. Let's go back to the beginning for this morning, which is verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Okay, so, so here's just kind of a good place to address uh, what many have thought and said about this passage. It seems weird. It seems weird, especially if you read the whole thing, and we'll see the rest of it next week. But when you read it, it just, it, it doesn't, it kind of feels off. Some people have called it a passage of thankless thanks. Like, hey, thanks for the gift you guys sent me, but I didn't really need it. You know, nobody wants to hear that, right? At Christmas, you give somebody, hey, thanks, but I didn't really need this. Is that, is that what Paul's getting at here? Is he ungrateful? You know, some say that people, the the Philippians might have been a little bit annoyed uh, with with Paul, that he's, you know, lecturing them on, on, you know, not being in need or anything after they have just sacrificially given a gift, oh, and had to travel like a thousand miles to get it to him. I think a little clarity is needed here 
uh, instead. So, you know, the gist of what Paul is trying to, to get at with them is that the thing he treasures above all with them is their affection and their concern. Um, their heart meant so much to him. And, and, and Paul just socially is trying to be careful. You see, the Philippians were going through actual poverty. Uh, we, we know from places um, in like 2 Corinthians 8, we, we read that, that the Philippians were helping other churches to the detriment of themselves. And, and people were going, hey guys, I think you're okay. You don't have to give right now. We know, and they're insisting. They're like, no, here, take my very shoes. I don't have shoes now, but you can have my shoes. That, that's how the Philippians were acting. And, and they were just the most generous people, even though they didn't have much. Uh, they were in actual need, but they just still kept giving. And so um, they, they have been giving faithfully to Paul. They, they love him. They want to protect him and take care of him. But there has been a delay in, 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 in time. And, and some think it was because of just the logistics of how long it took to get their, their gift to him, being in Rome and in prison. But probably it was more that there was actually, like, they didn't have anything to give in this moment. And so it had taken them a while. Maybe some circumstances had gotten better over the last year or something. But now they were able to finally give again. And so um, Paul isn't, is wanting to make sure they don't feel bad about that. Because maybe they're going, well, gosh, is... Is he mad at us? Has, has there been, you know, is he, and he's like, look, I've been fine. I've been okay. Thank you guys, but I haven't been starving. He might have been starving, but he's going to say that he's not f- so that they don't feel bad that there has been a delay there. Um, he's not going to say, boy, this would have really come in handy six months ago if it had been here. Thanks it's finally showed up. You know, he, he's not, he doesn't want to say any of those kinds of things. And he also, and you guys have felt this, maybe when somebody gives you a very big gift, you don't want to feel like the only thing you appreciate is, is, is the gift. You don't want to seem superficial. So he, he is doing that as well and saying, I thank you guys so much, but, but our companionship means more to me, and, and I've been okay too. So to relieve some of the guilt maybe that they have been feeling. And also on a social level, there, are, there were corrupt religious leaders then, just as there are today. Um, he doesn't want people to think he's, you know, looking to buy his next Learjet in the moment. Hey, this gift's going to come. I can put my down payment on it, right? Thanks. Thanks for he, he He's just got to be careful in the way that he accepts this gift. And he doesn't want people to think he's got favoritism towards them over other churches who have given. And it's just a complicated thing for Paul to be in the position that he's in. He normally turns down assistance from other churches, and he says, look, no, I'm going to work. I'm going to make my own money. I don't, I don't, want, your, I don't want your gifts. Um, but he, he is accepting it in this moment. But so, so Paul has decided he's going to give kind of a life lesson um, and once again give an example of, of what it looks like and to deal with need and provision and all this kind of stuff. And so, so that's kind of where we are. He's going to take a look at his own life. And, and in verse 11, he says, look, not that I have... Am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Twelve, I have, uh, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
And so Paul is, in this time, he's going he's to um, kind of contrast two ends of a spectrum. Being low and, and, and abounding. And, and this is not just in, you know, money and stuff. It's also in, in status and in situation, right? You've just been in low places, in low circumstances. And he says, I've been there. I've been spat upon. I've been hated. I've been disrespected. I, and I've also been in an elevated place in my life as well. Um, uh, he, he's going to talk about being in plenty and, and, and being in need. And, and, and as he's contrasting these kind of two things, I think he's, he's also uh, including different kind of attitudes and emotions. We, we spent the last two weeks talking about anx- dealing with anxiety and fear. And um, anxiety is a common feeling when it comes to provision, isn't it? Um, we, we might say that anxiety asks the question, uh, do I have enough to survive? Do I have enough to get by? Do I have enough to make it? That's, that's the question with anxiety and in, in lots of different ways. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? That's, that's the question that, of anxiety. And, and, and we all have been there. We've all dealt with anxiety. We know that question in our minds as, as a provider, as a spouse, as a, are we going to be okay? Do we have enough? Are we, am I going to make it? And, and so anxiety is something we will still be, you know, be a part of this passage. But he's, but he's also going to go to a different place as he's talking about these extremes of the spectrum of having plenty and being in need. This being in plenty thing can bring up another, uh, another way of thinking that we would call discontentment. Discontentment. You see, while anxiety asks, do I have enough to get by? Discontentment asks the question, do I have enough to be happy? Do I have enough to be satisfied? Do I have enough to have what I want? Can you hear the difference? Paul is going to say that we can commit errors in both places in life. Both in our anxiety to worry too much and have too much anxiety in a low place of worrying. And then being in con- discontentment. We can be discontented and say, but yeah, but do I have what I want? Do I have, do I have what I want to be satisfied? And he says, we have to work hard to, to avoid following, falling in either one of those errors. So, you know, Paul is a person who's lived in, in, in lots of different situations, Probably the last 20 years of his life or so, we know he has not had much. He has kind of been traveling, and anything that he has gotten, he has used to spend on, on travel and ministry usage. How, whatever he gets, he's going to try to go plan another church. He's going to go travel somewhere, use it for ministry somehow. So he, so he, he knows the, the emotions of not having very much, not having a home he, he knows those, those emotions. He, he is, is a human, and he's absolutely felt at times worry about what is coming next for him. And we know that feeling. I don't know what's next for me, and there's anxiety there. And, and he also knows what it, what it is like to be a human, um, to, to grumble and complain because he wanted more. I don't know all of your life stories. I don't know all of your current situations. 
But I can't suspect that, that many of you in this, this room have, have had times or seasons in your life or maybe your upbringing where you just truly didn't have enough. You could say, I, I had a life of poverty. I, I know maybe that's, that's some part of your story and, and you know the anxiety of that. Maybe you, you saw your parents go through that, that in their lives where making ends meet just wasn't happening. It's just not happening. I don't know where it's coming from to get to tomorrow. I'm not sure. And, and so if, you, if you've been there, you know the kind of anxiety and discontentment that Paul is talking about, that we're talking about in this moment. Paul has lived that. But on the other side of it, Paul <laughs> was probably born into privilege. He was born into a life of high status. We know that he was highly educated. He went to the best schools. He was given the best as a kid, he would have had opportunities that most would not have. In that sense, Paul has, has had, you know, at, at different times in his life where he had abundance. He, he knows that feeling as well. And, and we can say there's a dangerous side to abundance, isn't there? Maybe, maybe more dangerous to be in abundance. Where we grow too comfortable and, and there starts to grow in us discontentment. Because, because honestly, where, where do you draw the line? Where do you start to, to think through, I'm in good enough shape. I have enough, right? When is enough enough? When would you say you have contentment over what your bank account looks like? I, I don't know. <laughs> when, when, when do you... Say, oh, you know what? I'm in great shape and I'm so happy with my retirement account. It's perfect. It's exactly what I want it to be. When does that happen? When is your car new enough? When does it have enough, not just to get by, not just to get you to work, but to have what you want? Where is that line? I don't know. And that's the problem with discontentment. My undergraduate degree was in communications, but it was, it, was, it was kind of a combination of marketing stuff. And so I can tell you that the science of making people discontent is really good. Like, there's been lots of studies. They know. This is, they're not guessing anymore how to get you to want the next thing. They're really good at it. It's, it's advanced stuff. They, they know what they are doing to get you to want more and to think, if I don't get that, then I'm not going to be as happy as I could be. Incredible, incredible science at sowing seeds of discontent. You and I live in that world. We've talked about it. Some say you get over 10,000 messages of advertising a day. It's inbred in who we are and where we live to be discontented, to think we're not doing it right and not having enough, and if we just had this much more, we'd be content. Anyway, everything would be fine if I just blank, right? We all have that. It was, it was put in us. They make money. The, the, our economy, you can say, is run on the concept of discontentment. If everybody got content, how many things would immediately go out of business? Discontentment sells. But that's not the philosophy of Paul here. Paul is concerned with the virtue of contentment. Contentment. What is contentment? Well, there's a definition that I really like, and I want to I show it to you. Um, here's, the, here's the definition of, of what I would call biblical contentment. 
Yeah, biblical contentment is an inward trust in God's sovereignty and goodness that produces the fruit of joy, peace, and thanksgiving in the, in the life of a believer regardless of outward circumstances. Regardless of outward circumstances. That's a big piece to this, isn't it? Contentment is, is something that everyone struggles with no matter what side of the, you know, having stuff side you're on. No matter what side of wealth you think you're on, you're struggling with contentment. Paul says, I can, I can be stuffed or starving and have learned how to be content in both of those places. I can be in the lowest place ridiculed by others, or I can be esteemed, and I've learned how to be content in those places. So this is relevant for everyone. Of course, let me remind you that no matter how you feel in this moment, in terms of the world, you are rich. In terms of the world, you're in the top percentage of the top percent in, in terms of wealth in the world. So I know that there are times that we would say, we're just getting by. It doesn't feel like I'm wealthy. You are. You are. If you have access to running water, you're wealthy. You just are. If you have electricity, you're wealthy. So the challenge for us isn't really, how do I be content when I have nothing? You and I aren't there. We're really more in the place of, I need to learn how to be content when I have more than I need, but less than I want. That's where most of us live. I have more than I need, but less than I want. I, I think for Paul, he's going to say the, 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 the big idea here. The answer lies in where is our appetite. What we want most of all. Remember, Paul has already said in this letter, I want to know Christ above all else. Above every other thing in the world, I want to know Christ. And everything besides that, no matter the circumstance, is rubbish. It's rubbish. And so he says, look, no matter what circumstance I'm in, I can know Christ. And I know that he's using that circumstance some way, somehow, even though I don't feel it. He's using that in a way that is good for his glory and is good for my life. I can know Jesus no matter what. And he's going to say that's what truly matters. He's been saying this the whole time. Remember, he started the letter of Philippians by saying, hey, I may die tomorrow, I don't know, and I've been in prison, but I'm so happy because people are getting to know Jesus by me being here in prison. And so I'll, I'll praise God for that. And you think, that's insane, that's crazy. No, because what matters most to him is Christ. And so he can have contentment like nobody else can because Christ hasn't changed for him. The reality of Christ doesn't, doesn't, isn't impacted by those circumstances. And so he, he says, I can accept any situation. I can be content in it because I know that I can know Christ more in it. And, and so this is the key to the passage, I think. Uh, something that I, that I have learned and, and, and something that, that, that is here is really important, and that is contentment is not passive. It's not laid back. It's not a twiddling of thumbs kind of stuff. It can sound that way. For some people, when you say contentment, you think, oh, that just means you're lazy. That's a different word. That's complacent. We're talking about contentment. Paul is going to say, I am actively pursuing 
contentment. Contentment and complacency are not the same thing. You see, for a long time, I used to tell people, Philippians 4.13 should be understood as, I can endure, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's how I taught it for a long time, for years and years. But I'm not teaching it that way anymore, and I wouldn't teach it that way anymore. Because there's more to it than just this passive endurance in, in Psalm, uh, Philippians 4.13. It's, it's a better word, and it makes it a more important idea here. Because see, Paul could have used the word endure. If he wanted to say endure, I can be patient in all circumstances. He could have said that, but that's not what he said. He purposely chose an active word here for do. Or, so that's what makes this so cool. Because pursuing contentment is cr- in, in Christ is not boring or fatalistic. It's not twiddling your thumbs. Because remember, he has said already just in a few verses ago, I'm pursuing, I'm throwing everything aside and I am pursuing Christ. I'm pressing on. Right? Pressing on is not passive, is it? I am pressing on beyond everything else to know Christ. That's what he's doing. He's on a mission. He's on a mission. He's not just sitting. And he's given up everything else that the world would have seen as a gain to pursue knowing Christ at all cost. And, and so he says, look, I am content in this new circumstance, but I will never stop pursuing Christ with all that I have. That's, that's where Paul is at in this moment. We might call it a holy discontentment. He's not discontented about things and about a circumstance. He has a discontentment that he wants to know Christ more. He's not okay with where he is because he says, I want to know Christ and I'll, everything else is rubbish. That's all I want to do. I'm discontent because I, I, tomorrow I can know him more than I know right now. And that's pushing him forward. It's active. It's powerful. It's going somewhere. And he says, I haven't reached that goal yet, right? We've talked about this already. So that should describe us too. I, I think it's interesting. Paul uses four verbs in verses 11 and 12, and they're all active. And they all have to do with acquiring knowledge. They all have to do with learning and, and getting more experience. He says, I have learned, I have learned, I have learned. Right? I'm acquiring the knowledge to know how to be content. Again, not twiddling thumbs here at all. And what Paul is trying to say is that this is not easy. It's been a lifelong process for him. He says, I've been struggling to learn how to be content. It's a lifelong battle. It's an active thing. And we gain experience. We gain knowledge as we pursue knowing Christ with all that we have. Finding contentment is not a a one-time destination. It's an ongoing mission. We're pursuing contentment because of Christ. So I told you that er- earlier that, that I, you know, I think the real message of Philippians 4.13 is actually better than the misused one. And I, I think that's true. I'll stand by that. Because, you know, while it would be, you know, great to use Philippians 4.13 to dunk a basketball, which some of us have tried in this room, failed, to score a touchdown or, you know, win a gold medal, there's something bigger here. <laughs> Right? And, and I would just call it the key to everyday living. The key to everyday living. 
And again, it's not what I, I thought it used to be, just a passive endurance. We know Paul. Paul is anything but passive. Paul is showing us a source for life strength. This is the source of strength for life. This is huge. This is as big a thing as there could be. He says, because of Christ's power, I have, I, I have the strength to live in any circumstance. And, and I am using the strength of Christ to learn how to have contentment. As he has been starving in prison, he says, I've been striving and strength in Christ to find joy, to have purpose in my life, strength to continue running this race that Christ has given me to run. And, and that's that strength of Christ that's given me the power to overcome fear and anxiety and discontentment. It's, it's given me contentment as I've struggled financially through tough times. Give me contentment as I've struggled with the fear of death. These people are about to take my life, but I still have contentment. What does that look like? And he's saying we can have the same power to practice knowing Christ that will defeat fear, defeat anxiety, defeat, defeat discontentment. It helps us know Christ and that that is bigger and more powerful than anything else there is and everything else is rubbish compared to it. He says this is what you have in Jesus. And he would say if he was here, you and I have already been promised the ultimate treasure. Where does your treasure lie? The ultimate treasure has already been promised to us in Christ, in this good news of the gospel. And and so because of that, through any situation, in every situation, whether we are high or low or rich or poor, whether we're stuffed like we will be this week for Thanksgiving or starving, we have the privilege of knowing the power of Jesus Christ through his gospel. And we have eternity, and ultimately that's what matters most. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you have called us to something that beyond our own imagine, a, p- a power that's not a selfish, accomplishing, great feats kind of power, but a power to live for today. A power that defeats fear, defeats anxiety, defeats even discontentment. This world flashes amazing things before our eyes, shiny things, wonderful things, things that promise happiness. You've given us something far more valuable, far more wonderful, far more powerful. Because of the power of Christ in us, we can find and practice and experience a contentment that is far greater than any worldly achievement. God, would you help us to pursue it? Would you give us the strength and the joy to see before us something so much greater, knowing Christ? Yes, this in his name. Amen.